0: Welcome to Redemption Community Church's Sermon Podcast. For more information, please visit www.redemptiondallas.org. Reading this morning from the book of Titus, continuing our series, Titus chapter 2, verses 11 through 15. and to purify for himself a people for his own possession who are zealous for good works. Declare these things, exhort and rebuke with all authority, and let no one disregard you. Father, this is your holy word, and we ask you in these next few moments of time that your anointing would bring light and revelation, wisdom and understanding to us as the people of God, and we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. If you recall from the first sermon on Titus, in the first three verses, the Apostle Paul covers all of eternity in three verses. He would open his letter by saying, Paul, a servant of God and an apostle of Jesus Christ for the sake of the faith of God's elect and their knowledge of the truth, which accords with godliness in hope of eternal life. So he's pointing forward. All eternity, eternal life, which God, who never lies, promised before the ages began. So really in one verse, he's saying God promised before time began your eternal life in the future. So he covers all of eternity in one sentence. In our reading text this morning, Paul narrows the focus on an event that happened 2,000 years ago and an event that will happen in the future. He's focusing on the first appearing and the second appearing of Jesus Christ. The future second coming of Christ was in the future in Paul's day, and it is still in the future in our time. It is apparent from reading across the New Testament that the church, from the first believers in the New Testament until today, have expected Christ to return in their generation. A question then that we could ask is, what is a healthy approach to this? How then should we live in light of the fact that Christ will return someday and in light of the fact that it is possible that He will return but not in our lifetime? Because every generation has embraced the idea that Christ very well may come back in our time. So he writes in verse 11, Paul writes, For the grace of God has appeared... Past tense, bringing salvation for all people. We take this appearing to be the birth of Christ, his life, his work on the cross, granting salvation, Paul says, for all people. Now, this is not, this all people is not a biblical endorsement for universalism. It's an idea that pops up every once in a while. It was really prevalent making inroads within Christianity 10, 15 years ago. Some very influential authors. Uh, Rob Bell, Love Wins. Um, this idea that eventually everybody's going to be saved—that would contradict the whole of Scripture. So that's not what Paul's saying. We we don't in- extract load-bearing walls out of one verse ever. We look at the whole of Scripture and synthesize it. So we take this to mean that no one is excluded from the possibility of salvation. This is also likely a reference to the idea that salvation is for more than just the Jews. This is a big idea in the New Testament, that salvation is not just for Jews, it's for Gentiles as well. So Paul is embracing that it's a possibility that salvation is open for all people. The idea of Christ appearing in His redemptive purpose is found throughout the New Testament. So Hebrews chapter 9, I'm going to read these five verses of Scripture. Writer of Hebrews says, For Christ has entered not into holy places made with hands, which are copies of the true things, but into heaven itself now to appear. So often in this passage, people will talk about the three appearings of Christ, because this is an appearing of Christ, what he's doing right now. He is appearing in the presence of God on our behalf. Nor was it to offer himself repeatedly as the high priest enters the holy place every year with blood not his own. For then he would have had to suffer repeatedly since the foundation of the world. But as it is, he has appeared once for all at the end of the ages to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself." And just as it is appointed for one man, for man to die once, and after that comes the judgment. So Christ, having been offered once to bear the sins of many, will appear a second time. Now, he's now talking about the second coming of Christ. Paul, will, or Paul, not Paul, the writer of Hebrews, whoever it was, some people think it's Paul, whoever the writer of Hebrews is, is saying that Christ will appear a second time not to deal with sin, but to save those who are eagerly waiting for him. So in verse 11 that we read this morning, Christ appears in the form of salvation. That's why he came. He said, I came to seek and save those who were lost. The very fact that you were saved, if you were saved, ought to create an attitude of thankfulness that is unshakable. I'm saved. I cannot be lost no matter what Satan or the world throws at me. It's not up to Satan. If it were up to Satan to cause you to be lost, Satan would have already caused you to be lost. It would be a done deal. If Satan could influence things in the world to cause you to be lost, you would be lost. Do you feel untouchable? Because when it comes to salvation, you are. Now, you can have your family stripped from you. You can have your money, your health, your freedom, your dignity, your pride. You can have all of that taken away. But that does not strip away the fact that you are in Christ. Jesus would say, my sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. I give them eternal life, and they will never perish, and no one will snatch them out of my hand. If you're in Christ's hands, there's no external force that can pull you out of that. This next sentence is what will lead him to be crucified. When he repeats the statement, but now he says, My Father, who everyone understands to be God, he repeats exactly what he said, but instead of him referring to himself, he says, My Father, who has given them to me, is greater than all, and no one is able to snatch them out of the Father's hand. This gets him killed. This gets him crucified. The Jews' response to that statement was to pick up stones and make an attempt on his life. But his time was not yet. They were focused on his alleged blasphemy of claiming to be equal with the Father rather than hearing the promise of what he had just said. They completely missed the fact that he said, if you are in my hand, no one can snatch you away. They missed it. Cars break down. I'm saved. There's more month at the end of my money. I'm still saved. There's a bad doctor's report. What do you do with that? I'm still saved. None of those things influence the status of my walk and relationship with Jesus Christ. Now, we believe that. I think if we went around and took a quiz and says, do you believe what I just said? Check yes or no. I think everybody would say yes. So we believe it, but do we functionally live that way? Verse 11, Jesus is called the grace of God who brings salvation to all people. Verse 12, training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age. Ungodliness is the standard of our culture. It's the default position of the culture we live in is ungodliness. We cannot afford for it to be the standard of the church. For the most part, sin is not preached against in the pulpits of American churches. And I say American because I feel like I've got my finger on the pulse of the average American church. I just don't know about the rest of the world. But I think it's safe to say that in the average American church, sin is not mentioned very often. Now there are churches that preach against sin, but in a very hateful manner. There are extremists. I won't name names, although one of the leaders in this group is very open about it. They don't hide it of what they do. But you could easily cite specific churches and pastors. And one man in particular who is well known for this prayed in a sermon for the death of Barack Obama in a sermon entitled, Why I Hate Barack Obama, and proceeded to explain why Obama's wife should be a widow and why his children should be fatherless. His hate speech against homosexuals is equally volatile, praying for a holocaust of AIDS to wipe out that community. And he has other more extreme comments that I would not be comfortable repeating in the pulpit that he has said in the pulpit. Now, we know, I mean, it's inflammatory, it's sensational, we know what they're going for um, not necessarily this same guy in particular, but groups like this that would protest at um, the funerals of veterans and things like this that would name themselves a church. Um, This man and others like him tend to be very fundamentalists. They're almost always King James-only churches, very anti-intellectual preachers. That's not what I'm talking about when I say we need to preach against sin. I think we know that, but just to clarify, I'm not saying we need to be those people at all. As with all things in life, there are ditches on both sides of the road. There's a danger in falling off to the left and to the right. We want to stay on the road. We do our best to stay out of the ditch. The ditch on the other side of the road is where other churches, and not all, but some, find themselves. So having a, like, how do we correct this? How do we find where the middle of the road is, how do we find biblical balance on issues like this? I would argue that having a healthy understanding of the gospel, which means a biblical understanding of the gospel, will help us to stay out of the ditches on both sides of the road. It all comes back to the gospel. What is the gospel? So how? Well, we can tell the sinner that God hates your sin and God will not and sin Your sin will not be tolerated by God, and your sinful nature does not allow you to have communion with God. And that is all of our default position in this world. We were born in sin and shaped in iniquity. We entered into this world sinners. But the balance of that, and this is where the gospel comes in, is that there is good news. The good news is that for God so loved the world. Some people act like it's for God so hated the world, but God It's not what John said. He said, For God so loved the world that He gave His only Son, that whoever believes in Him should not perish but have everlasting life. For God did not send His Son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through Him. Whoever believes in Him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the only Son of God. And this is the judgment that light has come into the world and people love darkness more than they love the light because their works were evil. For everyone who does wicked things hates the light and does not come to the light lest his works should be exposed. But whoever does that which is true comes to the light so that it may be clearly seen that his works have been carried out in God. The gospel creates balance. God does hate sin. I used to say and think that America is thumbing her nose at God. It's not, I think that's an expression, an idea that's kind of fell out of uh, our, our language. But it used to be a thing. I mean, thumbing your nose, this is what it meant. I mean, it just meant to, you just kind of thumbing your nose at God. I think we're past that. America is flipping God off is what America's doing. It's not this. It's a far cruder gesture of flipping God off. It's not casual, it's blatant, it's in your face. So what Paul does is say, because our culture increasingly mirrors that of the culture of that Roman Empire. If you read history and stories of the Roman Empire and what their values and morals were, uh, it starts to look much like modern america and in some cases even worse in things that they would tolerate and legally allow but it's also where we see some of the slide toward is that if we don't stop the slide we will end up where we were two thousand years ago so paul says here's how you live in light of god's grace with christ verse 12 is connected to verse 11 verse 11 salvation has appeared through god's grace he's referring to christ out of response to that, we renounce ungodliness and worldly passion, and we live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age. There is a renouncing, and there is a living. The renouncing actually might be easier. Because the renouncing is the words we speak, we speak out against sin, we, we call things for what they are. Our words, but also our actions. We can live out our faith in ways that influence society. We could place elected officials into office, uh, officials that maybe hold a biblical worldview. So, okay. We want to put people like that in office to influence the broader culture. It's one way you could influence and renounce ungodliness. We could use our finances in ways that boycott and support according to uh, a company's stand on a particular issue. Those are ways that you could influence and renounce. Most of our energy, however, will be spent in the living. We are called to live. That means Monday mornings and Thursday afternoons and just live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives. The life of the man and woman who is in Christ will be lived drastically different than that of the unbeliever. So be ready to be uncomfortable in social situations. Be ready to be marked on the job as closed-minded. Be ready to be called out maybe in a classroom school setting to where, what do you mean you don't believe that? Everybody believes that. Be ready for other Christians to call you out for not being accepted because you live this way. Now, what we're not saying is that law keeping is the way to salvation. It's not. Jesus is the way to salvation. Jesus doesn't save you and then you keep the law to be saved. That's not how you stay saved. Well, Jesus saved you, but now we're going to give you this list of do's and don'ts and this code and you keep this and now you're keeping yourself saved. Morality is good, moralism is deadly moralism, this idea that through morality is how you stay saved, is deadly. We talked about it last week or the week before. It's it's been the battle that the church has fought for 2,000 years in one way or another. 2,000 years ago was law-keeping according to Jewish custom. Luther fought this same idea, though, 500 years ago. It's The church had evolved there in a different way. So the biblical framework for living right, for living pure and holy and godly is found in these verses. All we have to do is look to the Bible and it will tell us God gives us grace through Christ. Our response to that grace is self-control, godliness, and righteousness. And when we live holy, our personal holiness, when done unto the Lord, our motive is unto the Lord. It's holiness unto the Lord. The Lord counts it as that response to grace, and He counts it as an act of worship. That's how you worship God. It's a way that you worship God. Do we know this? Romans 12.1 I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. King James would say reasonable service. More modern translations get it more accurate to the original text. Your spiritual worship. Presenting your body. Now, if there's any doubt that we're talking about self control and worldliness, then the rest of the verses that follow go back and interpret what that means. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that, you're, that the, by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. Not being conformed to this world, but being transformed by the renewal of your mind. Presenting your bodies as a living sacrifice. And Paul says that is your spiritual worship. It's a way that you worship God. You worship God when you live right out of proper motive. Let's look at verse 13. Paul continues to write and says, Waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing... The appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. Now he's looking to the future. He's reached back and talked about the appearing of Christ, giving us salvation. Verse 13, waiting. We're still waiting. 2,000 years ago, we're still waiting for that blessed hope. The appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ there are disagreements probably more disagreements within christianity regarding the order of events surrounding the return of christ probably more disagreements there than anything else that i can think of at least broadly speaking that's usually where uh, and usually there's a great amount of grace as it should be extended between parties and churches and Faith traditions, and it's not always faith tradition, because even within a faith tradition, you can have multiple, when you do have multiple views. Very common. I do not know of, I'm thinking as I say this, I, I can't think for the most part of a faith tradition, although some faith traditions will, for the most part, see the end times a certain way. But I think within each faith tradition, you will have people that hold a variety of different views regarding the order the sequence things are going to happen. We should extend a great amount of grace there and embrace and not disfellowship over these things because what I've feared for years is that people will get so caught up trying to figure this out or trying to be right about it that they will miss the whole point of Christ's return. Like you miss the central idea trying to figure out what surrounds it. It's like, well, at the end of the day, the fact is Christ is going to return and we all agree on that. So let's make that the main thing. So there's two categories of, that people disagree on. The first one is the millennial reign of Christ. It is a thousand-year period of time talked about in Revelation 20. And you have people that say Christ will return before the thousand years. So we call those premillennial, people who believe in the return of Christ before the thousand-year period premillennial. Some say Christ will return after this, meaning that the thousand-year reign of Christ will happen before he even returns. So this would be people who, uh, I have friends who embrace this idea. I don't. I have have people I I respect that embrace this idea. I've had a one-on-one conversation with the president of a seminary who told me he's post-millennial. Like, he's a really smart guy. I think he is the most well-versed New Testament Greek scholar that I know of alive today. And he embraces this position, meaning that if you're post-millennial, you probably don't think Jesus could come back today because the idea is that the world will, for the most part, become Christianized. The church will have influence throughout the world and that this reign of Christ will then usher in the return of Christ. I've sat in seminars uh, with conferences where people would assert this view and one particular seminar conference I was at was at SMU and the, the man was speaking and they opened up the questions the Q&A session was reserved for SMU students and one of the students said you say that the world is gradually becoming more and more Christianized like what about the holocaust and he goes well that was a major setback <laughs> like, yeah I, that's Maybe the understatement of the century. The Holocaust was a major setback. Now what people who believe this will say is that you must judge this in 500-year periods. The world is, there's, there's modern civility that occurs today that did not happen 2,000 years ago because the world has been influenced by Christianity. I am just not that optimistic. <clears throat> So there's premillennial, there's postmillennial, there's some that say the thousand years in Revelation is figurative, and that we are already in the reign of Christ since the time of the first coming of Christ. That Christ's kingdom has been established, and that this thousand year period in Revelation 20 is figurative, and so that will be called amillennial. And it's kind of a misnomer because amillennial would say that there is no millennium, and People who hold this position would say, no, there actually is. It's just that we've been in it for 2,000 years. So as if that weren't enough, you have people then who, you have this seven-year tribulation period. There are people who believe Christ will return before the seven years. We call that pre-tribulation. Nothing to do with the millennial. There are people that say Christ will return three and a half years. In the middle of it, we call those mid-trib. There are people who say Christ will return after the tribulation, so we call those people post-tribulation. So you combine the two, and you could have people who are premillennial post-tribulation. And you can start, and you can see how this starts to get a little muddy. You have you got three options here and three options here, and I didn't do the math, but whatever that is, the, the combined total number of options, there's a lot of options there. Uh, so now you see why biblical prophecy and all this starts to get a little muddy because you have all these. Um, a seminary professor was once asked, this actually happened, uh, I, I know who the professor was, he was asking class, which of these views do you hold? And he answered, are those my only options? And, and that was his answer. I spent most of my life embracing a premillennial, pre-tribulation, dispensationalist view I tentatively hold to a amillennial view that says Christ establishes kingdom reign at Calvary and will consummate that kingdom reign upon a second return. And I say tentatively because I don't think anybody should be too dogmatic on some of these things and make them hills to die on uh, because our ideas on some of these things evolve. I have friends who embrace all of these positions that I love and respect. My, I have a good friend who is. uh, I don't think he'd care me say his name. It's it's Derek, my good friend Derek, I went to church with for years. Who's, he and I hold probably a mere probably pretty much the exact same ideas on these things. I think we're in alignment. He's writing a paper as we speak, um, on a, a paper for his seminary on this subject. He's defending the the position, and I agree with him but he'll send me the paper sections at a time and I'll poke holes in it. And I'll say, you know, I'm playing devil's advocate. I'm pushing back against this. Why? I'm making arguments against it because it's easy to make arguments against all of these positions. So I'm saying, I agree with you. And here's my argument if I didn't agree with you because it's a really easy argument to make. If you're going to write a paper on this, you've got to be able to defend these particular views. And so, and I I readily admit that the position that I hold, uh, when it comes to Revelation 20, there's still some question marks and some holes in that that are not satisfactory to me. So my point being, let's not get hung up on this stuff. Churches extend grace. I went to hear three or four weeks ago, a man lecture. It was a lunch lecture at a seminary downtown Dallas. I went to hear him lecture and he held a position and he's on staff at one of the largest churches in the United States. It's here in Dallas. And I went to the church's website and their statement about what they believe about the end times and how it will transpire was diametrically opposed to what he taught. And he actually said words to the effect, we can't stamp this idea out fast enough. And yet he serves, gets a paycheck from the church, That he disagrees with. Now, there are some things doctrinally I think that would be a problem with here. I think that can be healthy, because we, if there's one thing that we know is that the Bible really isn't crystal clear on a lot of these things. Um, So I do I I hold to an idea that Christ returns, the return of Christ, and that the rapture and that the return of Christ would be a one and the same event that the church would, if Paul is being literal and the church ascends into the sky, that the church would usher him back. That's certainly the language I think that's here. Um, There simply is no text in the Bible that indicates the church would go from here on earth and disappear to heaven. There's no text found in scripture for that. This idea was non-existent in the church before 1830. This idea came up in a revival camp meeting style Uh, service across the world uh, where they started to teach this and a man named John Darby began to espouse this idea. Darby's ideas were picked up by a man named Schofield. Schofield put them into his study Bible and this idea exploded worldwide. But this idea has existed in the church age for only about 10% of the church age. And I have dear friends and preachers who I respect and admire that hold to this view. So, we respect and we can respectfully disagree with when I have conversations with other preachers, other pastors on this. Um, we must extend courtesy in these areas. What we cannot compromise, what is an absolute deal breaker, is the belief that Christ will return in the future. Now, I don't know of any. When I, I, I'm, I'm leery to use the word conservative because you hear political, Republican, conservative. In Scripture, conversations about the Bible, that's not what we're talking about. A conservative view of Scripture and a liberal view of Scripture don't line up politically with our system. I don't know of any conservative (laughs) preachers or pastors that would deny the return of Christ. But over time, especially the last hundred years, some of the most influential people who write about Scripture have refuted and almost mocked the idea that Christ would actually be coming back and returning. They mock the idea. It's not real. Peter wrote, Knowing this first of all, that scoffers will come in the last days, scoffing, following their own sinful desires, and they will say, so I want you to see this was happening 2,000 years ago. They will say, where is the promise of His coming? For ever since the fathers fell asleep, all things are continuing as they were from the beginning of creation. Now we expect unbelievers to deny the return of Christ, especially if they deny Jesus was a historical person. So I I think we know that in the broader secular culture that more and more people are questioning, questioning whether or not Jesus was a real person or is it just a story. And if he was a real person, there certainly was no resurrection of the dead. Again, Christian scholars, and I use that with huge air quotes, who have been some of the most influential people in the last 200 years, have denied the resurrection of Christ. Much of this came out of Germany. Um, over the last 150 years, the German liberal scholarship, those guys, they, there had to be a serious course correction. And thank God there was Uh, to stamp a lot of that out but this they were certainly influential in Christianity and I I say that why are those dead guys relevant is because they continue to influence Christianity today so we expect unbelievers to deny that Jesus didn't exist I don't think that's where we are we believe in our hearts that Christ will return I don't think there's probably anybody that I know of that I work with close that says I don't really think Jesus is coming back so that's not the issue the issue isn't mentally, do we believe it? I think we believe it. The question is, do we function in life as though Christ will return? Again, a question of functionality. Do we live as if, a- act every day as if, make decisions as if Christ could return? Verse 13, Paul says, The appearing of Christ is our great hope. Is that our great hope? Like, what is our hope rooted in? Is our hope rooted in The stock market is our hope rooted in retirement, in family, in friends, in things that are all necessary and good. But is that our hope or is our great hope what Paul's great hope was? And that's to say King Jesus really is going to return back to this earth. He really is going to come and make all of this really is temporary. Grace appeared 2,000 years ago. In the man Christ Jesus, who was divine, the Son of God, both man and God, fused into humanity. He was our salvation because the penalty of sin was accounted for in the death of Christ. And He really will appear in the future as our blessed hope. And it will be a time of judgment for this world. And it will be a time of rejoicing for the people of God. And we live a healthy, balanced life in Christ by looking back to His first coming and looking forward to His second coming. Jesus is coming back. The influence of God's grace at Calvary and the influence of our hope in His second coming is what causes us to live godly lives. Now it brings it back, Paul brings it back to the practical, to the ethical. Because He lived... 2,000 years ago, because he ascended and because he is coming back, Paul sandwiches that and says, out of response to his first and second coming, you are to live self-controlled, godly, holy lives. His redemptive act starts at Calvary, and it spans the entirety of the church age with his redemptive act. In other words, his act of saving you, What God does to save you, it finds its completion when he closes the church age with his return to this earth. So who does Christ save? It's a verse I read earlier out of Hebrews. For Christ, having been offered once to bear the sins of many, will appear a second time, not to deal with sin. He dealt with sin in his first coming. When he comes back, he is going to save those who are eagerly waiting for him. I would not want to be in the shoes of those great, again, air quotes, great scholars of Christianity who influenced the world, who didn't even believe he was coming back. because He's not coming back for those people because they're not eagerly awaiting him. I want to be counted in the number of people that are eagerly waiting his return. His first... Appearing dealt with sin, His second coming saves us. Final salvation, finished, complete. When He returns, if Christ were return, would return, say, tomorrow. That means that after tomorrow, if you are in Christ, you would never struggle with sin again. You would never have sorrow. You would never suffer. You would never have tears, pain, sickness, death. The Revelation names all these things. There will be no more. And he just lists all these things if Christ would return tomorrow. But if he doesn't, then the question is, how should we live? The return of Christ is central in Paul's second letter to the church in Thessalonica. He mentions it in his first letter. It's central in his second letter because there were men who were quitting their jobs because they thought Jesus would return right then. I grew up and my pastor told a story of when he started ministry in the 1950s and he knew a guy who went out. I think back then they allowed ministers' income to not, you would not have to pay social security if you had uh, a certain type of income and that minister opted out of social security. He said, I will never grow old enough to collect Social Security because Jesus will come back before then. I've heard stories about people those decades ago that would go out and just buy a big fancy car they couldn't afford because Jesus is going to come back any day. It really heated up the the Six-Day War in 1967. I've heard the stories in the Six-Day War in 67. man, they're like, when they cross that line, the trumpet's going to sound. People were sure That was going to usher in the return of Christ. Paul was dealing with it 2,000 years ago. Men were quitting their jobs. So the conversation about the second coming of Christ in 2 Thessalonians is very pastoral. Paul writes them and says, get back to work. Go find a job. You're not going to be idle busybodies. Go work. Plant your gardens pay your bills, live your life, plan for the future. That's what Paul is telling them to do. Live your life as if, because you don't know. Buy a house, plan for retirement, use wisdom, because Jesus could come back today and He might not come back in your lifetime. Someone said to me last week, With all the events in Israel, He must be returning very soon. And I want to be careful not to mock that because I do believe Christ could return before I finish this sermon. But if He does, I do not in any way believe it's because of what's going on in the Middle East. I take Jesus at His word in Matthew 24 when He says concerning that day and hour, no one knows, not even the angels of heaven, nor the Son, but the Father only. For as as were the days of Noah, so will be the coming of the Son of Man. For in those days, before the flood, they were eating and drinking. So he's talking about judgment. He's framing this as judgment because it will be a judgment upon the world. As in the days before the flood, people were eating, drinking, marrying and giving in marriage until the day when Noah entered the ark. And they were all unaware until the flood came and swept them all away. So will be the coming of the Son of Man. Another passage says it will be as a thief in the night. So in one sense, we must live as if He is coming very soon. Because I, again, I believe He could come back before I finish the sermon. But in another sense, we must live as if we are going to die and meet Him in the resurrection. Because either way, either way, the guarantee that you have from Scripture is that you will meet Jesus at His second coming. It's just a question of will you be alive or will you be dead, but does it really matter? I mean, you're going to meet Jesus at His second coming. It can be now, I may take a dirt nap for another hundred years after I die, but in that moment, the dead in Christ, Paul said, will rise first. And then we, which are alive and remain, will be caught up in the air to meet him. Either way, I meet Jesus at the second coming. Does it really matter? So we could say it this way. If I, if I frame this entire sermon, I would say this way. This would be the, the sum of it. Ethically, we live as if he is coming back tomorrow practically we live as if we will die and be resurrected on that great day. We say that again. Ethically, we live a life that Jesus is coming back today. Practically, we can't live that way. If we all honestly believe that Jesus was coming back, let's say a week from today, next Sunday, we knew that. I can guarantee you, none of you would get up tomorrow and go to work and school. I promise you that. I don't, you, you, would go, you would go to the store tomorrow morning and say, how many more groceries do I need for the rest of the week? You would make phone calls that you've been putting off for a long time. You would make some things right. You would pray some prayers of repentance you would set some things in order if you knew Jesus was coming back so does it matter if he's coming back next week or next month or next year or if we meet him in the resurrection because we die first so you flip the question and say well what if you knew you had one week to live you would maybe do some things differently because now you know that not everybody that you know is going with you you would start putting some things in order or what would you do if you had one year i think that's a great question to ask i've I've actually made notes if i had one year left to live what what would i do how would i live life if i had one one year left Um, you know none of those things are spiritual like if i had one year left like one of the things on that list was I would buy a dog because I don't have one. I would think I'd want a dog about last year. I think I'm living longer than a year, so don't get your hopes up. <laughs> but, yeah, I mean, just, so what if you've got a year or if you've got five years? Or so what if you've got, you think, well, I've got 30 or 40 years. So what? You know how, you know how fast time goes by. I used to hear people talk all the time when I was younger about how fast time went by, and I just didn't have a category for that. You felt like you're going to live forever, and it certainly doesn't feel that way now. We know that there is a an hourglass hanging over our head, and that sand is, is going quicker and quicker. And there is an appointed a day. God has a day set for your life and my life. So how do we live? We live ethically as if he's coming back tomorrow. I'm going to die tomorrow, or maybe I'll die 30 years from now. No one knows. But practically we live as if we've got some time. When Paul talks about the return of Christ in 1 Thessalonians 4, and I point this out because I've heard so many sermons that try to scare people with the return of Christ. Well, for one thing, you cannot scare people into being saved. Doesn't work, it's not possible. God doesn't count anybody righteous in Christ because they're scared. That much, is we know, is not in Scripture. Faith is what justification is centered around in the Bible, not fear. So you can't, now you could preach somebody to the altar, you could scare somebody for a while, but that doesn't save people. When Paul talks about the return of Christ in 1 Thessalonians 4, he ends the conversation with this. He says, Comfort one another with these words. The return of Christ for the people of God is supposed to be an idea that is comforting, that is encouraging. He'd say that in 1 Thessalonians. In Titus, he'd say, it's our blessed hope. It's our great hope, the return of Christ. It's a positive thing. Jesus is coming back. And I grew up hearing lots of preaching and hearing lots of singing about the return of Christ. And maybe part of that is because To be a Christian, to be a believer was kind of, you know, just kind of this oddball out there. You probably didn't have a lot, you probably struggled financially. And so we'd sing songs like, Jesus is coming soon, morning, night or noon, many will meet their doom, trumpet will sound. I'll fly away, oh glory, I'll fly away. When I die, hallelujah, by and by. I'll fly away on and on and on we shall see the King the songbook was loaded with songs I don't hear much singing about the return of Christ anymore I don't hear much preaching about the return of Christ anymore maybe it's because we're comfortable we've learned and just this this world kind of is our home we're we're comfortable here but remember this all of this is very temporary temporary everything that you do everything you buy Every aspiration in this life you have, it's fine, but just know it's not eternal. It is temporary. There is only one thing that is eternal, and that is your soul, your being, who you are. That will live forever. Jesus is coming back again. We long for that day. We wait for that day. It is our blessed hope. Let's pray. people of God, we have worshiped you, Father, for 20 centuries. We've gathered together. We've talked about your return. You told us, surely I come quickly. And yet in your divine providence and in your plan, you have not returned. And we trust that. We know that it is according to your time. You've told us it's not for us to know the times and seasons. We know that you hold all things in your hand, all things in your divine providence. The world events, the politics, the wars, all the things that we see, they are but puppets and pawns in the master's plan. So Lord, as we, the people of God, we view these events, we view our lives differently. We're going to work for the good of our city. We're going to live ethical lives. We're going to work hard, plan, live life. But all the while knowing that your return is very soon. And if you choose not to come in our lifetime, Lord, we have to prepare for our death. And I pray that you would help us to live a life of wisdom, to prepare for death according to Scripture, that we would live lives that would be honorable and just, and that most of all we would live lives that would give glory and honor to your name so lord as the people of god we celebrate this morning the reality the fact that you will return again whether in our lifetime or if not we will be resurrected on that great day to meet you in the air and so shall we ever be with the lord and we thank you for this in jesus name amen together let's lift our hands and worship him jesus thank you this morning for your goodness. Thank you for your word. Thank you for your promise that you will hold us fast, that no one can snatch us out of your hand. We bank on that. We are secure in that, that we have a hope that is unshakable. We cannot be touched. Our salvation is secure in you. We thank you for that in Jesus' name. God bless you this morning. You're dismissed.